Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back. A little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power, weakness head on me. Free, 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 free. I'm Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bobble Hour. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this installment of Season 10 of The Bubble Hour. This is Episode 3 of our 10-part retrospective, looking back over the past decade of the show. I do encourage you to listen to Episodes 1 and 2 if you haven't already. I have set them up in the order that I think will help not only give you the best experience as a listener and form the narrative in the most cohesive way, but, well, who am I to tell you what to do? You can listen to them in whatever order you want. But this is the suggested order. As we say in recovery, you know, I'll stay on my own side of the street. You do you. This episode is all about the hosts of the show. The original co-hosts, Ellie and Lisa, and then came Amanda and Catherine and myself. Now, I do want to say right off the bat, too, you might have noticed we always just use our first names So different hosts have had different perspectives on anonymity, sometimes because it's part of their recovery program and some out of privacy concerns for their family or professional reasons. Ellie was public as a recovery advocate, and I began blogging anonymously in 2011, but eventually I did reveal my name and identity when I started writing professionally about recovery. So I didn't start saying my full name on the show until 2016. Up to that point, we stuck to first names only, and so I'm going to continue to do that in this episode. So you heard a bit from Ellie and Lisa and Amanda in episode one, and today we're going to start by hearing a bit more of their individual stories. Ellie was the originator of the idea for this podcast, and she moved quickly to make it happen. You know, being impulsive has served me in many different ways, but the whole idea for the bubble hour <laughs> came at like 10 o'clock at night on a random Tuesday. and. You know, by Saturday, I had a nonprofit in the works, and, uh, you know, I I don't do anything small. The origin of the whole thing and this kind of madcap idea I had one night when I couldn't fall asleep, and I want to give a huge shout-out to Lisa, the original co-host with me, because it was her concept of having a bubble of protection around ourselves when we're sober and what sorts of things we put into our bubble to keep us through the hard times that we get from day to day. and. <laughs> 
she would post funny little pictures of a bubble with candy bars and her dog and all these. And, and I just, I had the idea of a podcast and my mind went immediately to Lisa at her bubble. I called her and I said, I have this crazy idea for a podcast and I want to call it the bubble hour. And that's your idea. What do you think? And she just jumped in as only Lisa can do with both feet. And I think our first episode that we recorded is a half an hour of us kind of giggling on the phone, just not even really thinking it was ever <laughs> going to go anywhere. I mean, it really, it was like, look at us, we're having a little podcast that a couple people might ever hear. You know, neither of us had any clue where it would go. We learned more and more of Ellie's story as she shared on different topics each week. Feeling of early sobriety, at least I'll speak for myself, but I, you know, you feel so rub raw, like all of your emotions are just pouring out of you. Every single thing that happens to you is significant, and you can't really filter anything. At least I was sort of jangly, exposed nerve. I could not believe that I could get to the point where I would be able to have healthy boundaries around other people's opinions, set limits, and, and not try to manage everybody, like I, my everybody in my family or all my friends, or even walking to a room full of strangers and try to make sure everybody's happy. I remember feeling at least for 30 to 60 days were a lot of anxiety, a feeling overwhelmed. Going to the grocery store was crazy. I was just overwhelmed at all the choices. Irritability and sleeplessness. And probably the hardest was a really deep sense of loss. I felt like I had lost a friend. I was almost grieving. I thought these feelings would never go away. But, you know, with time and by talking to other sober people, they did. It did go away, but it was definitely a process, a learning curve, and in the first days of sobriety, if you can get through one hour or one day and just not have a drink, then you should be really proud of yourself. That's enough. That's a full-time job in the very beginning. And heard people talking about these things that I felt like were my inner darkest secrets, like that I'm broken somehow or that if you really knew me, that you wouldn't like me or that I had to be perfect. I, I grew up feeling like I had to be perfect or my parents could give me back. It was a really deep-seated fear of mine when I had my first drink at the age of 12. I remember that feeling of, oh, this must be what it's like to feel normal. Ellie often read beautiful passages about recovery that were insightful and moving. Like this essay titled, I Can't Feel My Extremities. The thing about drinking, it enables you to manufacture emotions, albeit fleetingly. Because let's be honest here, if wine or scotch or beer didn't have any alcohol in it, would you still reach for it at the end of a stressful or tiring day just for the great taste? I wonder. The other day, I was watching a PBS show, and they did a piece about oinophiles, definition of which is lovers of wine or ones who study the many aspects of wine. And this man was going on and on about the legs of the wine, the color, the clarity, the nose. And as he was talking and swirling and swirling and swirling this bit of wine in his glass, I'm watching and thinking, just drink it already. You know you want to. Who do you think you're fooling? Maybe it's just wishful thinking on my part. Maybe I just don't want to believe that such a creature exists on the planet, somebody who literally just studies wine, blabbers on about it, swishes it around in his mouth, and then, get this, spits it out as if. Because I believe that the vast majority of people who drink do so to change how they feel at any given moment. At a party and want to loosen up a bit? Have a drink. Tired after a long day? Have a drink. Relax those muscles. Have an argument with someone or an unusually tough day? Have a drink. 
soften the edges a little, turn the volume down for a bit. I'm talking about what I find, fondly call normal, ordinary, regular people here, NORPs, if you will, not problem drinkers or alcoholics. I'm all for drinking to make a good time better, improve a bad day, or unwind a bit. If you're a NORP, I say go for it. Have one on me. Just don't try to sell me that you really just enjoy the taste. I don't think you'd drink it if it didn't transport you away from yourself a little, just for a while. If you don't believe me, have yourself a non-alcoholic beer at the end of a long, hard day. You know, just for the taste. If I sound defensive, it's probably because I'm jealous. I like to get defensive when I'm jealous because it's much more fun to be a little angry than it is to feel, feel inferior in some way. All this rambling brings me to my belated point. The hardest thing to get used to in sobriety for me is all this being present all the time no matter what business. I don't get to manufacture emotions anymore. Life on life's terms. And life, it turns out, isn't all peaks and valleys. See, I like extremes. Give me ten or give me zero, but please don't give me five. Five is so, I don't know, boring. When I'm at 10, the world is my oyster. I can conquer anything. I'm fearless. Nothing could ever possibly go wrong. When I'm at zero, I'm not good enough for the world and nothing matters anyway, so why not just wallow in a good old-fashioned pity party? The infuriating truth is that real life is mostly five, with the occasional spike to seven or a drop to three. Very, very rarely do any of us get to go to 10 or zero. I drank to manufacture a few tens to wallow in a few zeros. In my sick thinking, at 10 and 0, at least something was happening. None of this shuffling around between 3 and 7 business for me. The difference between me and a NORP is that I didn't drink to change my 4 to a 5 or to make my 5 a 6. I drank to zoom in my rocket to 10 or cliff dive right down to 0. All rambling aside, though, I'm pleased to report that there is a moral to this story. I should never, ever watch television shows about wine connoisseurs. I recall how, as a listener to this podcast myself, I rewound this next clip a few times to listen to it again because it moved me so much. Hiding bottles around the house, and I can remember there was one time I was home completely by myself, and I was trying to sneak a bottle out of, like, the, whatever, the linen closet or wherever it was, and I was being really quiet with the door and really quiet, sliding it out, and I'm thinking, it occurred to me, even sort of in a, in a weird little lucid place in my brain as I was doing that, that, like, I'm, there's nobody here to hear me. Who am I, why am I being quiet? And I realized I was trying to hide from myself. Hang on to that image of Ellie hiding from herself, because we'll come back to it later. But for now, let's hear more from Lisa about how her alcohol use took her by surprise because her father was an alcoholic and she was determined to never be like him. Having an alcoholic father shaped me as a person. I never would have imagined that I would be in this place where I'm in recovery because I always thought I was way too smart. There was no way I was going to wind up like my dad. So I think that's part of why it took me so long to accept it because I was totally going to do the exact opposite. Well, that was my plan anyway, but my childhood was really full of uncertainty and inconsistency, which led to anxiety, which I still have today, but it's definitely dissipated since I've been sober. I always felt like I could control my alcoholic father's behavior 
kind of by appearing perfect. Then when he didn't show up or he didn't show up at all or he showed up drunk, I blame myself because I believe it was because I wasn't good enough. And, you know, I'm working through this, but to this day I still feel sometimes like I'm not quite good enough. And I think a lot of people have the same fear. It wasn't all bad. I feel like while I would never, ever, ever wish an alcoholic parent on any child, I do think that I've learned to see that through some of my childhood and teenage experiences, I did gain some awareness that I probably would not have had otherwise known. These traits might have saved me a few times along the way. For example, I know I learned to um, question authority at a young age. And just because an adult told me no to something, I didn't necessarily believe it or take it for the answer. Knowing that authority figures are fallible has helped me immensely in my life. Even now, I'm not afraid to question a no, which has been really helpful to me because I'm an advocate for children professionally, and I have to be willing sometimes to go against medical professionals or educators or even families at times. So growing up the way I did did give me that, and I'm thankful and grateful for that. But I do realize that many alcoholics do fear authority, but for me, it's kind of been the opposite. Instead, I fear more my peers. Lisa also read pieces that she'd written, more often because she spoke of subjects so tender and difficult that it was easier to relate them by reading prepared passages. You can hear the emotion in her voice in this next one. I knew that I drank too much long before I ever told a soul. I went to great lengths to cover up my drinking. I hid the true extent of my drinking in the isolation of my home. Alcohol played tricks with my mind and magnified my ability to rationalize my behavior. Denial is a powerful thing. I convinced myself that my drinking wasn't that bad. I didn't have a DUI. I didn't go to jail. I didn't lose my family yet. But I felt like every day was a nightmare that I was living in. The highlight of my day was sitting alone at night drinking wine. I didn't look like an alcoholic wino in the gutter but I had this black hole inside of me that I was trying to fill with alcohol. To the outside world, I looked like a success. On the inside, I was dying. Alcoholism is a word shrouded in desperation and shame. As a woman suffering from alcohol addiction, the standard is doubly so. As a little girl, I didn't run around squealing excitedly about wanting to be an alcoholic when I grew up. Instead, I ran around squealing excitedly about wanting to move away, go to college, one day be a teacher and help other people, one day be a mommy. Becoming an alcoholic was the furthest thing from my mind. In fact, growing up, I saw firsthand what happens when a person is an alcoholic. My personal experience made me believe that an alcoholic could not love me because I was not worthy of being loved. An alcoholic never followed through with promises and commitments. An alcoholic left for days and made me wait to hear if he was alive or dead, all while questioning what I could have done to stop this from happening. Could I have been sweeter? Could I have been prettier? Could I have been funnier? An alcoholic passed out in my neighbor's yard and got arrested and went to jail as my friends were over, witnessing every detail to, to later share with classmates. An alcoholic forgot to pick me up from school, and I had to walk home, making me question at age 11 what I did wrong to make this happen. An alcoholic made me drive his car because he was passed out at age 13, while I was scared to death but stoic. My main goal was keeping his secret so that I could protect him. 
an alcoholic stole all the money from my college fund and drank it away the year before I left for college. An alcoholic shows up drunk on the football field to be my homecoming court escort, leaving me ashamed and humiliated, angry and confused. All of these things and more happened to me growing up because my father was an alcoholic. I vowed from an early age to never be anything like my father, and I wasn't, so I couldn't be an alcoholic, right? I was everything society and my community expected me to be. I was an overachieving perfectionist. I finished college, got married, and began my career as a teacher all around the same time. Drinking was normal then, I thought. We were very social people with lots of friends. My husband's career was thriving, and part of that was based on evening cocktails with clients and trips that included social drinking. Sure, we drank too much sometimes, but so did everyone else. I had officially escaped my childhood. I was determined to be perfect. I was determined to never think of my past. I simply did not allow myself to even have negative feelings or feelings at all in general. I was the epitome of what it meant to be a people pleaser. I was everyone's go-to girl. I was the friend you could count on. I was a passive wife who never voiced my opinion, and I nodded my head yes to anything and everything I was asked to do. I even suggested going places and doing things I hated because I wanted things to always be smooth and easy for everyone else. There was one constant through all of this. There was always a drink firmly in my hand. Fast forward to motherhood. I had two babies very close together. My dream had at last come true. Finally, I was a mom. I was given two children to love and loved them I did. With a force so powerful, I could not handle it. It overwhelmed me and terrified me. I used wine as a way to detach from the overwhelming amount of love I had for my children. I drank wine at night to escape from my obsessive thoughts about all of the ways I mothered wrong. I drank wine to dull the sound of toddlers and their mothers at playdates in my house. I drank to get through the endless chores that came with being a mom of two small children. I drank wine to feel like a part of the group at a dinner party. I drank to be the person I felt like my husband liked. I drank wine to drown out unresolved and unacknowledged feelings of shame and fear and questions about who I was pretending to be and unworthiness that were lying just below my surface. That way of drinking worked for a while until it didn't. When it stopped working and doing what I needed it to do, I hid and I drank more. I began to cover it up. I began to take are you an alcoholic quizzes, and when the answer started to read yes, I would lie to myself to get the results I wanted. These quizzes are wrong. That's what I would say to myself. I'm not an alcoholic. I can't be. I'm way too smart for that. I'm a wife and a mom, and I put my family before anything. I'm an educated woman living a life to be proud of. I overcame my childhood, and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do for everyone. I take care of everything. I can't possibly be an alcoholic. I don't do the things my father did. He is an alcoholic. I am not. Denial is a very powerful thing. Accepting and then admitting I was an alcoholic did not come easily for me. I was afraid. I was afraid I would be judged by other women. I was afraid that people would think less of me for being weak enough to succumb to addiction. I was afraid I would never again have fun. I remember thinking that there was no way I could ever have fun without alcohol being involved. I was afraid that I would not be able to deal with life without alcohol. At some point, I realized that my fear of life without alcohol was not as scary as losing my life to alcoholism like my dad. Although our alcoholism manifested differently, although his disease had progressed to such a high level of addiction that he did eventually become the stereotypical drunk on the street before he died, I was just like him. I was just drinks away from my life becoming what his eventually became. Alcoholism is progressive. 
If I did not get off this fast-moving train, I would die of this disease, too. I may not look the part, but I was the part. I'm a sober woman now, and I can look at myself in the mirror without seeing a stranger. I fought very hard to get here, and I never had to go back. I've learned that it takes a strong and courageous person to admit defeat and recover. My children are now seven and nine, and they will never have the same traumatic experiences I had at their ages. Instead, they will have a mother who will love them and protect them and cherish them. I'm learning how to accept myself and deal with the feelings and emotions and conflict in life without numbing myself with alcohol. This recovery is a gift. Every single day, I wake up without fear and without shame that used to plague me. I wake up thankful and hopeful. I'm a work in progress. I'm not where I want to be yet, but I'm getting there. I hope everyone listening will hear my story and reach out for help. Just please give it a try. I let myself be vulnerable enough to connect with other women just like me. Doing that one small thing from behind the safety of my laptop helped me to get where I am today. I listened to others who had gone before me with this, and I wanted what they have. I wanted so badly that I was willing to believe them. There are women just like you and just like me who are smart and who are courageous, and I've learned so much from them. I hope that you will give this a chance, and if you're listening to this, that you'll be willing to recognize that there are women just like you who are doing exactly what you're doing, and we're here to help each other. Now, instead of being part of the problem, I'm part of the solution. Lisa spoke of some of the challenges of sobriety, like strained friendships and unlearning survival skills from her childhood. One of the very first people that I told was a very, very close friend. She knew me before my alcoholism was obvious to others. It wasn't obvious to her either. I don't even know if it was obvious to myself when we first met, but she also knew me during the most horrible stages of my alcoholism. During my first weeks, of sobriety, I avoided her because I couldn't even say the words out loud. Denial runs very deep. I told her maybe three or four weeks into sobriety that I wouldn't be drinking alcohol. And I remember her asking why. And even though I think at some level she had to know why, but I remember saying something like, because it's destroying my life. I don't even know who I am. I told her how long it had been since I had last had a drink. And I was shocked by her reaction. I was thinking she would be really proud of me and happy for me and kind of my cheerleader. But I guess this is a cautionary tale because expectation is the root of all heartache. Suddenly she became really distant. I thought maybe being open with her would help get things back to the way they were before. But after my confession, she was just distant and cold. And to my surprise, I was heartbroken. And I realized that she no longer wanted to be part of my newly sober life. I thought, why did I tell her? What, you know, what could I have done differently? I think my admission was really a threat to her own drinking behavior. I didn't see it this way at that time. I think it threatened her and it made her feel like, okay, what about me? So that first confession was really traumatic for me, but it all led me to where I am now. As sad as that was, I think because of that experience, I'm stronger. I understand now that her reaction had very little to do with me and very much to do with her. Even so, being hurt that badly did make me second-guess telling other friends details about my very personal journey. I'm not ashamed, but I'm private. And I really struggle with letting people in, and now I see that that's also a way of trying to control people. I'm really a work in progress, and I know that. The good thing is I recognize these things, but I still am learning. You know, I'm still really trying because really, for me, boundaries 
feels uncomfortable, even almost scary, because it kind of goes against the grain of the survival skills I learned in childhood. I learned to repress anger or other, even other painful emotions just because it wasn't acceptable. You know, I, I might have been attacked or blamed or whatever for expressing, you know, pain. So I think I've really struggled with learning how to set healthy boundaries. It, it kind of carried over into my adulthood, but maybe I went the opposite way with it and built really high, high fences. Progress, not perfection. It's all a big work in progress. I feel like I've got a long way to go, but I, I also feel like I'm getting there. I used to feel separate in a way that was unhealthy, kind of like shameful and unworthy. And then I started to see that I've really been powerless over the behavior patterns I learned in childhood. I've learned the difference between guilt and shame. That's really helped me a lot with with boundaries for me because guilt, in my definition, involves behavior, and while shame is about our being. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. I can remember begging Amanda <laughs> to be pleased part of this, and she would only do it from behind the scenes. She would only help me with a technical piece of it. She's like, I cannot co-host a, a podcast. I'm not articulate. I don't have good ideas. You know, I can support you, and I want to help you, but I, I just, this is not something that I'm comfortable doing. And look at her, look at her now. She's a shining example of, first of all, never say never and never tell me you can't do anything because, damn it, you can. <laughs> and how much this show has helped all of us kind of blossom. Amanda shared some helpful insights about practical matters, like here, where she explained the legal process of getting her driver's license back and shared her letter to the appeal board. Just to give you a little background, I got sober after being arrested for my second DUI. This is not something that I'm proud of, obviously, but I'm grateful for that arrest because that's what it took to get me sober. In Massachusetts, you automatically lose your license for two years with a second DUI, but you can apply for a work license, which is the hardship license, where you can drive 12 hours a day to get to and from work. And after a year without a license and after you've completed all the court-ordered programs, you can apply. 
So I went to apply, and the registry immediately denied my application, and so I had to request a hearing. And the hearing is held in a courtroom, and there's a panel of three people, I think one from the district attorney's office, one from the registry, and one from, like, the insurance board of the state. I went into the court, it's a regular courtroom, and I walked in there, and everyone had a lawyer except me. And I was pretty anxious. When they finally called me up there, I went up by myself, and they read off all my charges, everything, going back to, like, parking tickets and stuff from when I was young. And then they ended with me being arrested for a second offense DUI on August 22nd with a blood alcohol level of 3.0, which is way high. And the whole panel, you could just see them, they were like, wow. I just took a deep breath and I said, I know, that's really awful, and that I wrote a letter. I'm very nervous. Can I read this to you? So this is the letter that I read. To the Board of Appeal, thank you for taking the time to review my application for a hardship license today. Below, I have provided a timeline of the actions I have taken since my arrest on August 22, 2010. My sobriety date is August 24, 2010. I have remained continuously sober for the past 15 months. On August 24, 2010, I checked myself into a treatment facility, and I was discharged on August 29th. I attended my first AA meeting outside of treatment on August 30th. On August 31st, I met with my employer and informed them that I am an alcoholic and I needed to get some help. We agreed that I would go out on short-term disability so I could focus on my recovery. I returned to work full-time on October 4th. September 3rd through September 24th, I participated in an intensive outpatient program at a facility in Massachusetts, which consisted of group counseling three times a week and weekly individual counseling. Upon completion of the program, I attended weekly alternatives in recovery group. The hearing for my arrest was on October 1st, and I pled guilty and was charged with a second offense OUI. I attended the second offender aftercare program the weekly counseling session that I had. I completed the 14-day residential dual program for second offenders for two weeks in November of 2010, and that was an inpatient program, um, very similar to jail, actually. I have had random drug and alcohol testing throughout this time and have never tested positive. I have complied with all the requirements of my court probation. After leaving my arraignment on August 23rd, I knew that I had a problem and needed to get help, but I didn't know what to do. Fortunately, I have an excellent support system. My father and my best friend are both in recovery, and they suggested I go away to rehab. I knew the courts would probably order me into some kind of program, but I didn't want to wait weeks or months for my hearing, and I knew that I needed to do this for myself. The next day, I started making phone calls and was lucky enough to find a bed at a treatment facility. When I was in treatment, I accepted the fact that I am an alcoholic and I am powerless over alcohol. The counselor suggested I go to 90 meetings in 90 days and enroll myself in an intensive outpatient program, so that's what I did. I have attended AA meetings on a regular basis. Before I returned to work, I attended one to three meetings a day. I far exceeded the 90 meetings in 90 days that was recommended to me when I was discharged from detox. After returning to work, I continued going to meetings five to seven times a week. I joined several groups, got a sponsor, and became an active participant in AA. I have had and still have numerous jobs in AA, including treasurer for one group and secretary of another. 
I have chaired meetings, I speak at commitments with my groups, and recently I have begun acting as a temporary sponsor for several women. I attend the following meetings on a weekly basis, and I listed out five of my regular meetings. I take my sobriety and my recovery very seriously and have every intention of remaining sober for the rest of my life, one day at a time. I am sure you will ask me what is different this time, and I can only tell you the truth. Prior to my arrest on August 22, 2010, I thought I could control my drinking. After my arrest, I finally realized and admitted that I am an alcoholic and I cannot drink in safety. I wish I could take back the things that I did in the past, but I can't. I can only go forward. Today, I can honestly say that I am grateful that I was arrested because that is what it took for me to realize that I needed help and to get sober. My father told me my arrest was probably the best thing that could have happened to me, although I didn't believe him at the time. He was right. I would not trade my sobriety for anything in the world. I am applying for this hardship license because it is very difficult for me to get to work. I depend on rides to get me to and from the train station, nine miles from my house, and then I walk to and from my office another mile and a quarter. Thank you for considering my application for hardship license. Driving a motor vehicle is a privilege, and I hope that I have demonstrated to you that I have learned my lesson from my mistakes I have made in the past. Sincerely, Amanda. So that was my letter, and uh, I can tell you I was doing my best not to cry when I read that, and it was hard. I'll never forget that day, and it was the best feeling in the world. I thought about it a lot before I went that day, you know, do I skim the surface, maybe, you know, not tell the full truth, but I have nothing to be ashamed of. And so I just went in there, and it was the best feeling in the world to just be able to stand up, hold my head high, and not worry, you know, whatever happened, happens. It worked. Thank too, you didn't it? for sharing that with us. That, <laughs> yes, <really>. it did. <laughs> it worked. It did oh, work. Yes, you I got did. your heart to bless us. That's an important well, ending to the that story. Yeah. That was really great. Thank you so much. Amanda told us details about rehab. For anyone considering it or who'd never been, it was helpful and it made the experience seem positive and less scary. They brought me to my room. It was actually nicer than I thought it would be. It was, you know, just two beds in a room. I had a roommate, but they weren't there at the time. There was a bathroom that was shared with another room, so four people sharing one bathroom. And, you know, the room was sparse, but it was clean and it was comfortable enough for me. You know, I was just there to get better. I dropped my stuff off in my room, and then I had to go right down to a meeting that they were having. They had a meeting around 7 o'clock every evening to wrap up the day. So I sat down in that meeting. At that point, I was still in shock at what I was even doing. And I think out of nervousness, I just turned to the guy next to me and I said, hi, my name is Amanda. He shook my hand and he said, hi, I'm Destiny. And um, I just remember chuckling to myself because I was like, oh boy, you sure are. (laughs) (laughs) In hindsight, it was a little sign for me. Then the next morning, we had our first group meeting to start. As I was sitting there waiting for the meeting to begin and all the other residents to come in, I was just crying. And it kind of hit me that I was sitting in a detox facility and I was done with drinking forever. And it was just really overwhelming to me. And one of the counselors there came up to me and gave me a hug and said, it's okay, honey, you're going to be okay. He was great to me the whole time that I was there. The meeting started 
we went around and introduced ourselves, and it was funny when it came to me, some people had been there obviously, you know, before me, and so they're going around the room saying my name is such and such, and I'm an alcoholic. So I just it was trying to be a good student, and I said, hi, my name's Amanda, and I'm an alcoholic. It was probably the most amazing feeling that I've ever had in my life. I felt this physical presence lift off of me, this weight, this enormous weight that I had on my shoulders, and it was the most liberating thing that I think I've ever done or said. It was just such a huge relief to say those words out loud. You know, Amanda had never really wanted to be a podcast host talking about recovery, but she came to really love the experience of weekly recording sessions. In in recovery, I found that the thing that one of the things that helped me the most was helping people. Things were going along just fine for me, but it was a little, you know, I wasn't as inspired. And then Ellie and Lisa put together the bubble hour, and I thought this was a fantastic thing that they were doing. And then I came on board helping out, doing some of the background stuff and hosting every once in a while. Now I find this incredible inspiration in my life, and it was something I wasn't looking for. I didn't know I wanted to do. Now it's something that I look forward to doing every week. It just inspires me just being able to reach out to people and help lots of people. And it just kind of fell on my lap. I wasn't really looking for anything. I'm pretty satisfied with my life. But, you know, I wasn't overly inspired either. Help others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. In the second year of the show, Lisa stepped down as host due to the demands of her busy life. Love from me too, Lisa, and for all that you've done. And thank you. Um, you're, you'll always be a huge part of my personal bubble, no doubt about it. Oh, and thank you. Same here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you we're... so much. I happened to hear this announcement, listening as I always did from my home in Alberta, Canada, far away from these ladies who had come to know so well as voices of recovery that had made a big difference in my life. Now, at the time, the work I did then, and I've since retired, but back then my job included a lot of media appearances. I'd done TV hosting and producing and radio commercials, so I knew my way around a microphone. Plus, I'd been blogging as unpickled since I'd gotten sober two years earlier, so I had a platform. And I wondered if there was a way for me to become involved in the podcast remotely. I really didn't overthink it. It just seemed like a possible fit for my profile and my skill set. So I dashed off an email and I thought nothing more of it. If memory serves me correctly, I got a very polite but non-committal reply saying, thanks for your offer to help. Later, I would learn that my blog was one that had helped Lisa get sober. And when she heard that I'd offered to take her place, she recommended to Ellie and Amanda that they take me up on it. It still gives me goosebumps, you guys. I had no idea. Here I was using the bubble hour to help prop up my lonely road to recovery. And one of the hosts was there because my blog had helped her. That's incredible to me. 
I really like coincidences. I sometimes put no stock in them, but sometimes they're just too big to ignore. So when it came to the bubble hour, those coincidences just kept coming. And when I look back on it now, it it feels like I was receiving affirmations that this was where I was meant to be. Not only did I not know that Lisa knew my work from Unpickled, but there were other things I didn't know. In fact, things that almost no one knew. I assumed that my offer to help on the show would come to nothing, that Ellie and Amanda would carry on hosting themselves and not replace Lisa with the new host. But one day my phone rang and it was a Boston number on the call display. I knew something was happening. So the voice that came through the line was one I knew so well. I found myself talking to Amanda. She said, you offered to help and I'm wondering if you could jump in on short notice. You guys, I can't even try to do her voice or her accent, but you know it. It's very distinctive and it was really cool to be interacting with Amanda's voice. So it turned out that Anne Dalesa Johnston had just released a book called Drink and she was scheduled for an interview the next day. And Amanda wondered if I could help. Well, it just so happened that I was going to be leaving on vacation the day after that. And sure enough, I'd already packed and that book was in my suitcase to read on my trip. So that felt like a pretty sweet coincidence to me. And I said, sure, yes, I actually have the book and I will read it tonight and I will be ready for the interview tomorrow. And there was more. Amanda sounded exhausted and it turned out that she'd had a really tough couple of days helping Ellie, who had relapsed since the previous week's show. And Amanda had been helping Ellie get into care. This came to me as devastating news. Months earlier, I would have assumed that relapsing was an embarrassment to the show, perhaps a shameful and dramatic twist, but thanks to what I was learning as a listener of the podcast, I was able to have compassion and understanding and reserve the judgment that just a short while earlier would have been forefront in my mind. I knew that the best thing I could do to help Ellie was to step in and help Amanda. So I stayed up all night reading that book because I'm a slow reader, but I was determined to be completely prepared for that interview. It was doubly important to me because I have so much respect for Anne Delsa Johnston as a Canadian journalist and for The Bubble Hour as a show that had helped me so much. Sorry for you. Before I let you go, I am leaving on vacation Mm -hmm. and I had bought your book to bring with me and so I was really looking forward to just digging into it. And last night I got a call from Amanda saying, help, I need a (laughs) co-host. Uh-huh. <laughs> to to speak to this amazing author about this amazing book. And I was absolutely thrilled at the opportunity, but I had to pull that book out of my suitcase and I've spent the last oh. 24 hours reading it. Uh-huh. Um, even under that change of circumstance, I enjoyed it so much. I highlighted so much. I made so many notes and, and I had a lot of moments of tears where you just spoke my truth. It was just such a beautiful read. It, it really is a great book. I, I thank, thank you, you for it. You've done some tremendous work here, and I'm very grateful for it. Thank you, Jean. Thank you for saying that. That was really touching, really touching. That was what it was meant to be. You accomplished what you set out to do then. (laughs) Thank you. you. I really, really appreciate that. It's very meaningful to me. The coincidences continued. Amanda and I soon went over my schedule to try to plan when I could start regularly joining the Sunday night recording calls. And I mentioned I was going to be away on a trip with a friend who had gifted me an extra flight to New York that she'd been stuck with when someone else canceled on her. Now, I'm a girl from the Canadian prairies. I never thought I would visit New York in my lifetime. I couldn't pass up that chance. 
Amanda said, don't worry. She had a second co-host lined up in Ellie's absence, a woman named Catherine who'd been on the show before. And actually, Amanda said, Catherine lives in New York. So in a strange twist of happy accidents, I was able to meet Catherine in person before we became co-hosts of a remotely recorded show. And by the way, that meeting took place on my 1000th day of recovery. So that felt like a lot of coincidences coming together. There was no way that Catherine and I would have ever crossed paths in this lifetime. But there we were, having a coffee and talking like old friends. Here's Catherine when she joined the show in 2013, followed by my official introduction as a co-host. Really honored to be a part of the Bubble Hour. I'm a big fan, and I just feel that this is amazing service. Glad to be here. Um, my sobriety date is April 5th, 2012. I am 38 years old. I'm a newlywed. The way I got sober was, I, I always start by saying it was really a complete surrender. I subscribe to the theory that we only suffer when we fight reality. That was very true for me. I felt like the last two years of my drinking, I, I was trying to stand up on a sheet of ice. It just wasn't predictable. I really couldn't manage it. One glass of wine and I could be gone or 10 glasses and I might not feel it at all. It was really frightening. I was really holding on to a, a picture of myself and, and trying to control all my emotions and, and control my reality when, in fact, I was just fighting all of that. So that surrender and that alignment with honesty has been a big part of my getting sober, as is the daily reliance on other sober alcoholics. Since this is a program about the holidays, I thought I would share that my very first holiday came a few days after getting sober, which was Easter Sunday. Normally, I would have felt like I have to go to the family event and I have to keep everything together. I, I would have felt that pressure to not let anybody down or not look imperfect or not raise any eyebrows. If anybody said, well, that's quite rude. I, you know, so even if I was in crisis, I would have felt angry and despairing and I just would have hidden it and forced myself to do it. But but this time back in 2012, I just said, I, I can't do that. And that aligning with honesty has been a really important part of my recovery that I am empowered. My willingness to be sober was very strong, but my willingness of any length has definitely evolved. In the beginning, I was nervous about going to recovery meetings. And then my willingness to go there and then to try new meetings, that, that expanded. And at first I thought, well, if somebody tried to tell me to go to, you know, 90 meetings in 90 days, I, I thought, well, that, there's no way I could do that. And then I became willing to do that, became willing to try praying, to read different recovery literature. And it's just, it's really evolved and gotten to the point where I'm willing to do things differently, to reach out to other sober people, even making phone calls, which I just am really resistant to do. I'm such an isolator. And so the willingness has gotten bigger and bigger, and it's, it's bigger than my fear of relapse, and it's, it's bigger than my bad memories of what it was like to be active. Going back to 2005, Early 2006, I was in an abusive, actively alcoholic marriage and just really in a very brittle 
physical, emotional, and spiritual state. I was totally incapable of being authentic about my feelings, even to myself. I just engaged in all kinds of avoidant behavior, top of which was drinking, because I wasn't willing to admit the circumstances that I was in. I just lacked the tools of how to deal with being authentic, which being inauthentic is the source of a lot of suffering for many people. You know, my family of origin was eggshell environment with this tacit contract to not deal with what was really there and how we were feeling. I didn't have the tools and I engaged in all this avoidant behavior. In 2005, a girlfriend of mine gave me a book called Let Go, Let Miracles Happen, The Art of Spiritual Surrender by Kathy Cordova. And I said, oh, thanks very much. That sounds interesting. And I chucked it into my closet. You know, subconsciously, I knew that this was going to be revolutionary for me. So it was sort of like having a snake in the house. It, it just sort of popped up one day. And in my memory, it literally just kind of emerged from this pile of stuff. And oddly, that week, I started hearing all kinds of messages about surrender, something my hairdresser said and something on the radio. And then the last straw that kind of got through my thick skull was I came home and I flipped on the TV and it was the tail end of the Inside the Actor Studio episode with Michael J. Fox. Somebody asked him about how he dealt with his career and being honest with his colleagues when his Parkinson's really was becoming advanced. He described how his face would become frozen, like in the shape of as if he just ate a lemon for 30, 45 minutes, and it was very painful, not to mention frustrating. And he said, you know, at first you sort of fight it and you want to change what's happening. At a certain point, you get to a place where you just say, well, this is just where I am right now, and I sit with it. This planted the seed for me of admitting who you are, how are you feeling, what exactly is going on. Now, it took a number of years before I got sober, but I, I actually started therapy right around that time and got out of that marriage, started getting really honest about what my behaviors were, sort of laid a lot, lot of groundwork that was very helpful then in getting sober. I wish it hadn't taken so long, but we're accepting that that's what happened. So the first thing was just being honest about how I was really feeling. Fast forward to 2012 and finally said, okay, I surrender and I'm going to get sober. And the first thing about sort of accepting what is was the semantic issue. I At first, I just really struggled with the A word. Now I can sort of happily say, I'm, hi, I'm Catherine, I'm an alcoholic. But at first, I wasn't comfortable with that. But I sort of said to myself, well, who cares what I call it? I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. I know that when I have one drink, I cannot stop. And I will keep going until I'm physically incapable of continuing. Jerry Seinfeld has the thing where he says the last working muscle when you're watching TV is your thumb muscle that's looking, looking for a channel. Like, that was me. Like, I would be, you know, one eye open, but still trying to get another bottle of wine open. And I could remember all of the shame around that. I could remember the fear that I caused my new partner at the time. The semantic issue is I got around it by just saying, well, 
I accept that this is the truth, that if I have even one, I can't stop. And now I actually feel fairly neutral about saying I'm an alcoholic. A newcomer in a recovery meeting asked me, well, why do we have to say it? I mean, can't we just be here and not really say it? (laughs) I think it's important to say it. We talk about things like being humble and surrendering to our higher power, maybe, if if that's your path. Saying the, the alcoholic word helps me accept that that's just part of who I am. I'm pretty neutral about it. It's a problem when I act on it. If I stay sober, then it's really fairly neutral. It's just part of who I am, and I I just have to deal with that. Just like Michael J. Fox just has to deal with the fact that he's shaking and has these other issues. The other thing at the beginning was accepting what to do about it, what to do about getting sober. And this makes me think of myriad excuses that I had as to why I can't or why it's going to be hard. Well, like in my case, I I travel a lot for work. I have to entertain a lot. Oh, this isn't going to be possible. Or there's no way I could engage in recovery meetings because I just don't have time. You know, and everybody's got all of these issues. But for me, acceptance just became, well, is that true? If you travel for work and you're sober, how do you reconcile those two things? Because they can coexist. And so I accept that. And it just makes it a lot easier. The only time I suffer is when I fight reality. Then I have a hard time. But if I don't fight it and I say, well, help me understand a solution here. How can I stay sober and still entertain clients for work? Another thing was accepting the reality of what happens when I pick up even one drink, playing the tape forward and accepting why I can't drink. So if somebody says, it can't be that bad, you weren't that bad, I have to accept that I blacked out almost every single time I drank at the end. That's Mm -hmm. just a fact. That helps me stay sober because this is why I can't drink. I, I accept that. Just accepting life on life's terms. I can accept that I don't have to drink, that I can deal with my emotions as they come through. I started actively questioning my thinking or what I actually called my stories or my fictions. I think I was a little bit in love with being the victim. I was a little bit in love with drama and suffering. I, I think I really held on to that pretty tightly in some perverse way. But I really just thought, even in early sobriety, you know, nothing will ever change or I can't handle these difficult feelings or things that are happening. Every time a thought like that would pop in my head, I would question, is that true? Or can you just accept you feel anxious this very second, but that's not fundamentally who you are? And that was really, really important for me. My anxiety, which had been always been bad, really spiked, and I thought, oh, great, you know, here I am just going through the sobriety thing, and it's getting worse. It's just who I am. That's it. I'm stuck, you know, and then I would question, do I have to accept that as reality? And the answer was no, and I'm, I'm happy to report that that really lifted. Instead of sort of judging it as good or bad, can't we just accept that Maybe we have some symptoms as they come along and and I can keep moving. Then you can take that training of yourself into 
having compassion for starting with myself and then also for others. But instead of going to the place of disaster and then resentment and anger and all the things that I might drink over, if I just align back with honesty and realign myself and accept, okay, it's really raining heavy out and now I'm going to get wet, (laughs) but I don't have to suffer. I can just accept this is how it is, and I'm just going to move forward through it with a lot of compassion for myself, for the world, for everyone around me. It's just made life a heck of a lot easier. I don't suffer nearly as much as I used to. So I'd like to start by welcoming Jean as our new co-host. We're so excited to have you. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit of your story of recovery? My name is Jean. I'm a person in recovery. For me, that means I haven't used alcohol since March of 2011. And I live in Western Canada in a fairly small city, so online support has played a huge role in my recovery. Blogs, podcasts, especially the Bubble Hour. There's a lot of great resources out there that have been very helpful to me. Additionally, I write a recovery blog called Unpickled, and that chronicles my journey from day one to presence of going through the changes in my life that came with sobriety. I'm the last person anyone would expect to be in recovery, or so I thought when I began this journey. My husband and I own a business, and we have three sons that are grown now, so, you know, super mom and super working woman and leader in my community and uh, very active in my industry, and I volunteer on boards, and I also write music and, and record and perform, although I recently gave up performing live as part of my recovery strategy because it was just too much adrenaline. It's really wearing me out. I am the typical vision of a woman who just goes 100 miles an hour all day long and then used wine as that brick on my head at the end of the day to slow me down and just provide that quick shift into the making supper and the quiet evenings at home and putting the brakes on. Over the course of a decade, it took uh, not only bigger bricks and more of the bricks, but that it, it, I got to wear nice, um, relaxing evening glass of wine was really an evening of just quietly drinking heavily alone and silently, and my family didn't realize, and I knew that I was in trouble. I knew it was getting way on me. I... As a business person, live in a world where you can make a chart and do some research and put a plan together and solve any problem and tried that. And I was horrified that I just could not rein it in. And I knew I wouldn't be able to keep it a secret for much longer. I thought that everyone would just be shocked if they knew, but there's nothing shocking about a superwoman having a secret. I now know that there are millions of other women out there just like me, just like you ladies, that are amazing accomplishments and are overachieving tendencies and all the things we think make it so impossible for us to be alcoholic is really part of a personality pattern that often accompanies addictive personalities. So I thought I was the most surprising alcoholic in the world, and in fact, I just was very ordinary. So that awareness really drives the passion for me to help spread the news of recovery and break through those stigmas that prevent people from asking for help. The shame and the isolation that we experience in addiction, I think, is unnecessary in this day and age of information. And shame kept me drinking and misinformation kept me hiding. I just believe with all my heart that speaking out and reaching out saves lives. And that's why I'm so happy to be on board with you here on the Bubble Hour and just give another voice of recovery and of hope. 
Jean and Catherine, you were both new to the show at the beginning of the year. It was actually, I think, November when you started co-hosting of um, yeah. 2013. Two new co-hosts all of a sudden, and it's like, wow, how's this going to go? And we've, yeah. we've formed this friendship. We've gotten to know each other. And I've known Ellie forever, and I, I just love you ladies. It's really been great getting to know you and changing myself and seeing you guys change. It's just been a really great experience, and I just love doing it. Now, I would be remiss if I failed to mention one other voice that many came to recognize as a regular part of the show, the intro robot. Blog Talk Radio. Here's something that only the hosts and guests from those early seasons will know. That voice was also heard off air while waiting for the show to begin, and it was rather menacing. So if you weren't nervous before you called into the screening room, holding on the line with all the various participants of the show, this automated voice would jangle everyone's nerves when it counted us in. Your show is scheduled to start in 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 3 minutes, one minute, and finally... Your show will go live in five seconds. Four, three, two, one. Blog Talk Radio. So, listeners just heard the nice part on those early episodes. Eventually, we learned how to turn off the tag altogether and eliminated it from the start of the shows entirely. I have left it up on the episodes that are on Patreon just for old time's sake, so Patreon members can still hear it. Otherwise, it's being removed from the old episodes and replaced with our theme music, which, did you notice, has been updated to include all the voices from those past hosts. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. I love it. The way we're all represented there together it makes me smile every time I hear it. So it was a happy day. When Ellie returned to the show in 2014, I knew she'd been away in treatment, but I had not heard any of the details. I didn't know really anything about what had happened with her, but I was really excited when she was coming back to the show. I was really looking forward to hosting together. The rest of us had decided it wasn't our place to share the reason for Ellie's absence, except to say she was taking some time off. So when she returned, I was curious to see what exactly she would decide to share on air. True to her nature, Ellie was generous and forthcoming. When she told the story of her relapse, I heard it for the first time along with the audience. Longtime listeners of the program will recognize our next guest, Ellie. She is a founder of the Bubble Hour, and we're really pleased to welcome Ellie back to the show. It's great to be back talking with you guys. I got sober for the first time in 2007 after drinking for 20 years. I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew I had a problem, but I just did not want to stop. I felt like that alcohol was the thing that held me together and just refused to acknowledge that it was the thing that was tearing me apart from the inside out. My husband had had it. My health was failing, and lots of consequences were happening because of my drinking. 
eventually ended up in a 30-day program, which was phenomenal. And when I got out of that, I didn't want to be sober, but I didn't want to drink anymore. So I just went ahead and did what they told me to do, just because it was the only thing I hadn't tried, which was to listen and to get help. I became very active in recovery. I went to a lot of recovery meetings. The community that I found there was the spark behind beginning things like the bubble hour, because I really felt as though that feeling of relief that I felt when I would hear other people tell my story and, and express the feelings that I had that when I was drinking, I really felt like the only one who felt those things or who did these crazy things like hide bottles or lie for no reason. The power of community was so uplifting and freeing for me that I got very, very immersed in recovery, both in my in real life communities with meetings and recovery people and sponsors and things like that, and also in the online community and in recovery advocacy. I did get very busy, but felt manageable and a, and a really great balance of putting my recovery first. If I stayed sober, then everything else in my life would stay intact and healthy and balanced. And in 2011, I had a really tough year. My dad died really suddenly. And then three months later, I was diagnosed with cancer with intensive chemotherapy and radiation treatments. A lot of the pain medication and things that they had to give me as a result of my cancer treatment flared up my addiction. I never became dependent on those pain medications, but it sort of poked the beast. It woke the monster up. When I started to feel better coming out of my cancer treatment, I had been offline from my recovery community for about eight or nine months, and I went into full-blown workaholism mode. I don't have time for my own personal recovery. I honestly felt that just by working with other alcoholics in recovery and talking to other alcoholics in recovery, that that was the same thing as working a personal program of recovery. What I was doing was running. I was running from the pain of my dad's loss. I was running from fear and the anxiety I experienced as a part of having cancer. I did not want to feel. I did not want to think. And I certainly didn't want to stop moving because as soon as I stopped moving, I would get that sort of existential angst and that itch. To the outside world, it looked like I was lighting the world on fire. The people that I did still stay in touch with that were part of my recovery community would say things to me like, Ellie, you do know that you're acting impulsively and obsessively and compulsively. The only thing you haven't done is picked up a drink. And I completely dismissed what they had to say because the rest of the world, the quote-unquote normal people who aren't aware of the way that people look when they're sliding into a relapse were saying, look at you go and you just really seem to be at the top of your game. If all these people think I'm okay, then I must be okay, right? From the end of my cancer treatments to when I actually picked up a drink was about a year and a half. By the time I actually relapsed, I was in so much emotional pain. I wasn't asking for help. I wasn't interested in anybody's help. Basically wanted to deal with everybody else's issues rather than my own. It was an opportunistic thing. I had vanilla extract, which has alcohol in it, in my pantry one day, and I, without even thinking, I remembered hearing that that had alcohol in it, and I and I drank it. To be protective of my recovery, I, I can't really be around anything that could lead to what I call an opportunistic relapse. I know now it was a giant cry for help. The obsession to drink came immediately back. It did not matter that I had almost six years of sobriety under my belt. It was instantaneous because I was so far away from my recovery community, so far away from working on myself. I wanted to hide from myself. And that's the only way that my disease, myself, that knew how to do that. And there was that 15 seconds of relief of, oh, right, now I'm okay in my own skin. And then the wheels came completely off the bus. Within hours, I'm driving to the liquor store to buy vodka, knowing full well that I'd relapsed, that I was in a heap of trouble 
that I was physically addicted immediately again, and I didn't care because I just couldn't stand myself for one second longer. There's still a lot of people in my life that are that are very close to me and insisted that I go get help. So I went back to the 30-day treatment program. Within two weeks of being there, I was fighting to get out. Someone in my life came to me at the, the, the rehab and sat down and said, no, I don't hear surrender from you. I hear you scrambling to get your life back. I hear a lot of ego. I hear your addiction speaking to me. You need to stop and focus on yourself. And I got so angry. I was terrified. The last person in the world that I wanted to be stuck with was me. So I took the last two weeks of that 30-day program, and I listened quietly, and I was a good student, and I reluctantly agreed that I needed to make a lot of changes and simplify my life, and I got out of that program, and I went home, and I made a lot of promises, and I kept them for maybe a couple of weeks, I don't know, saying that I'd stop being so busy, and I would focus on myself, and I wouldn't, you know, overextend the message of anything you put in front of your recovery, you're going to lose. I ignored that. I thought, my kids need me. I've just been away from them for 30 days, and my businesses are struggling. And so many people stepped in when I was away to make sure that I could focus on myself. But all I wanted was my life back. I didn't want to make those changes, and I didn't want to do the hard work. I did go back to recovery meetings, and I sat there for three or four times a week. But I was not surrendered. I was not willing. I still wasn't a good enough reason for me to stay sober. Recovery is nothing if it's not an inside job. And when I'm uncomfortable in my own skin and when the only the person that you want to hide from the most is yourself, that's a really dangerous place to be in. I needed a lot more help than I was asking for. Defiance is a big part of my story. So I made it 90 days before I put myself in a situation that was dangerous, taking care of somebody else in a very, very triggery environment where there was alcohol around. There was wine in a refrigerator that was open, and I opened the refrigerator to pull out some leftovers to heat up for dinner, and I pulled out a bottle of wine instead, and I just drank it. There was not a moment's thought. There was not a moment like maybe I should call somebody or maybe I should ask for help. It was almost an out-of-body experience, like watching my hand reach for the bottle and thinking, well, here we go. My relapse lasted about an hour. I got in the car and, and tried to drive home with my kids, and we have a whole safety plan in place because of my first relapse, and my daughter recognized that I was driving too slow and asked me to pull over. And about five minutes after she asked me to pull over, I started to go into a gray out. She called the police, and the police came, and I was arrested, and I had a DUI with child endangerment and a heap of legal trouble and a very, very angry husband and kids that I had scared half to death. You know, it's a miracle that things didn't go much, much, much worse. Sober women that have been by my side the entire time came in and just looked me straight in the eye and said, you know, no more messing around. You're going for long-term treatment. You're going for at least 60 days, 90 days if we can get it, and it's all about you. It really, it, for me, it was a life-and-death situation. I, I mean, thank God. I could have fought it, and I could have tried to make excuses, but there was nothing left to go back to. By going into longer-term treatment, I had to sit with myself. The wreckage that I experienced as a result of that last relapse is, is staggering. You know, here I was, somebody who was out front in the public eye all the time talking about recovery advocacy, doing a podcast. 90 days of just focusing on my recovery and on myself. Recovery is completely an inside job. It's not something that can be done with your head, with my head. It's my thinking and my brain that gets me in trouble. I had to move it from my head to my heart, and I had to fall in love with myself again. I would rather get sober 100 times over than sit down and look at a lot of the, of the old wounds in my life. But mm -hmm. I know now that until I did that, I could have built the strongest recovery in the world. If I'm building a recovery castle on a swamp, it's going to sink. 
can remember when I got sober the first time, I thought, you know, I'm really glad I'm married, or I'm really glad I have kids, and I'm really glad I have these outside factors that I'm afraid of losing, because I think without them, I'm not sure I could stay sober right now. I'm very, very blessed to be back with my kids and living at home, and I've really simplified my life. Recovery is a full-time job for me now. I'm separated from my husband, and that's the kind of thing that would have sent me right into a relapse before. All these things that I could never imagine staying sober through, that I could never imagine finding a, a, a purpose, a way to keep going, that to lose those outside things would just be unbearable. I'm finding a sense of self-worth. I'm finding a sense of self-confidence, which is completely the opposite of ego. But to find that sort of sacred space within myself, finding out who I am when I'm not in any kind of spotlight and finding out who I am when nobody's watching and when nobody's home and wanting it for me, wanting peace of mind and filling that hole that I have in my soul that I that I think I'll always carry around to a certain degree. A good friend of mine said, you know, sometimes God taps you on the shoulder and sometimes he elbows you in the teeth. I'm not saying that I'm grateful for all the hardships I've been through, but I am grateful to be somebody who remains teachable. If I'm negotiating with myself, if I'm negotiating with people around me, that's the first sign of a relapse. It scared me that I could know I was an alcoholic. It scared me that I could know that my life would fall apart if I drank. And not only did I do it once, I did it twice. I relapsed twice. That's really kind of a slow form of suicide or perhaps a quick one, depending on how unlucky you are. For the next few years, Ellie, Amanda, Catherine, and I would spend every Sunday evening on air, taking turns leading and participating in discussions, arranging guests and topics. It was a demanding position, but also fulfilling and enlightening. There was never conflict or drama. We all just showed up and gave from the heart, holding space for each other and for the guests who so generously gave their time to participate. I loved Sunday evenings. You know, Catherine and I joined the show in order to give Ellie a break so that she could work on her own recovery. Ellie, we were so excited when you came back on the show. It was so wonderful for so many reasons, not only because we were really excited to host with you as, as both of us are fans of the show before we joined it, but also because we were so happy for you that you were feeling strong and ready to come back. What was it like to be away from the show? What was it like to come back? And what was your first episode like? Oh, wow. I'm feeling pretty emotional. I have a real lump in my throat. Completely burned out. The bubble hour had actually become kind of a burden for me. It wasn't something I even looked forward to doing because I, I felt so worthless and so full of shame. I was sliding into a relapse. I didn't even know I was heading for a drink. I would have sworn up and down that I wasn't. I had bitten off way more than I could chew. You know, I kind of thought that I had to be the center of everything, that everything had to bottleneck through me. You know, I had my hands just wrapped so tightly around the wheel of everything. I, I kind of let go of it all. I sort of free fell away from my life. The fact that, Catherine, that you and Jean were able to step in the way that you did. And I was gone from the show for nearly a year. To watch the three of you grow this little crazy madcap idea that I had into what it is now and the people that you've reached and the way that the three of you come together and the way you complement each other, the way you're different, the way you're the same, I'm really staggered. I mean, there's no other word for it. My heart is just, I am, it's overflowing with gratitude, really, mm -hmm. really and truly for all three of you and guests and listeners and whew, 
you know, I don't find myself speechless very often, but I, I kind of feel that way tonight. I, I think of all the things that I had to walk away from, despite how burned out I was, the bubble hour was probably the one that I worried about the most. But I had to completely 100% let go of everything, and I couldn't be in touch and find out, you know, how are things going and who's going to be the guest and what's happening here. I had to completely cocoon myself into treatment twice, 30 days in the fall and then 90 days again and from March to June. It's by far the hardest thing I've ever done, walking away from my life as I knew it. It was a year of shedding masks for me. And when I came back to the Bubble Hour, I didn't. I don't even think of myself as a co-host of the Bubble Hour. I think of myself as a friend of Jean and Amanda and Catherine. <laughs> to be able to ease back into the Bubble Hour and feel so safe with you guys and feel so welcomed and at home, <laughs> I feel like I learned from you guys all the time. This show is a gift to me. Now, starting with Lisa and continuing with all of you and certainly with all the guests that we've had, I'm humbled and grateful for the amount of vulnerability and courage because those two things in my mind come hand in hand that have come from everybody who's been a part of it. Eventually, four of us would gather in person just once, and you'll hear more about that in an upcoming episode. True to her word, Lisa did return as a guest multiple times, sharing her warmth and insight as she continues to live life in recovery. Good will come as long as I keep doing the next right thing, which is really what my goal is every day. And that's the best I can do. And if I know I'm doing that, I am okay with myself. I can go to sleep at night and be okay knowing I'm doing the best I can with any given situation. That doesn't always mean I'm doing the right thing or the perfect thing, but I'm doing the best I can. For now, I hope these voices have filled your heart as they do mine. I am forever grateful to Ellie and Lisa and Amanda and Catherine, and it is my honor to have stood among them as a host of the Bubble Hour, which is, I dare say, iconic as an early standard bearer of the form of recovery podcasting. Come back soon for the next episode when we'll share a laugh about some of the inglorious moments we experienced. If you love the show and you want to give us a boost, there are loads of ways to do so. A five-star review is easy and impactful, and please subscribe to our spinoff podcast, Tiny Bubbles, and review it if you would be so kind. And you can also join us on Patreon and help offset the expenses of maintaining the archives, and in exchange, you'll get access to full episodes from the backlist ad-free. And don't forget to nab a copy of our book, Take Good Care, Recovery Readings Inspired by the Bubble Hour. It's available on Amazon. Thanks for listening. I'm Jean McCarthy. I'll be here when you're ready to hear more from this season. So do come back soon. And until then, please take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies to hide. We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on. I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Oh,
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.